0: The year was 160 AD, early church father, Polycarp. Pastor Bishop of Smyrna, which is in modern-day Turkey, he was revered by the Christian community because he was the last living person who had been himself associated with an apostle. He was largely, or or likely, the uh, understudy of the apostle John. So imagine that connection through somebody who knew an apostle. For that reason, he was highly revered. He was a champion for gospel truth, and he stood against the heresies that were everywhere at that time as the early church was trying to figure out the gospel and figure out the nature of Jesus. One example is he stood against the famous early church heretic teacher Marcion. Now we pick up his story, Polycarp is... 86 years old, and Smyrna was a city that was dedicated to the worship of the emperor of Rome. Polycarp, of course, is a faithful pastor, preached against that, told them the emperor was no god at all, that Jesus was God. He preached against the pantheon of Roman gods, and they had many and huge temples and all the rest that you can see to this day. He preached against that. Well, for this, Polycarp, at 86 years old, was arrested and was brought to the stadium in Smyrna. And there, the, uh, the proconsul urged Polycarp to deny Christ and to pledge allegiance and worship to the emperor of Rome. Polycarp looked grimly at the proconsul, and the proconsul said, quote, now swear, reproach Christ, and I will set you free. And Polycarp said this, 86 years I have served him, and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king and my savior? And that day, Polycarp, age 86, was burned to death for refusing to worship Caesar and to continue to worship his savior, Jesus Christ. Here we are today, all about him, 2020. And uh, this is a year like none that we have ever had in our lifetime. 2020. We are in a series on government in Romans 13, and the role of government and the role of the church. And it just seemed like as we were thinking about uh, how to celebrate the supremacy of Christ, and you know, we've this is the 24th one, so we have looked at a lot of different ways that Jesus is preeminent over that many years and messages. But we just were thinking about, here we are talking about government and it's a year of election and it's so much political tension and all the things that people are filling uh, social media with, filling their minds with, how right it would be to talk today about the supremacy of Christ over government, over governors, over Caesars, over presidents, over kings, indeed over every human authority in our lives in a message entitled Caesar bows to the king. And that is all about him, 2020. What we've learned in Romans 13 about human government, we've learned many things, and we have more messages to come, by the way. But what we have learned here is that government is God's common grace for the organizing of human society, that even if there was no fall, there would be human government. And we see governance in the Trinity and governance in uh, the church by God's will and in the home and, and indeed in human society. Even the angelic realm, the perfect angelic realm has governance. So government itself is not the problem. The problem is always the sinners who are governing the sinners sinfully that is always the problem. We never ha- seem to have angels running for public office, do we? It's always these sinners. Every single election, it's sinners that I have to vote for over and over again. We read through human history and we see that this story has always been the case. You can read in the Old Testament, the, 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 the kings and, and those that were in authority, sinners, sinners. We can read the story of the Roman Empire that dominated the world for a thousand years and all those Caesars, sinners. We can go to others in human history from Napoleon to Mao to Washington to every single human or every single president in the United States and whoever will be the president in 2021, it's always sinners governing sinners sinfully. And we can look at that and we can say, well, you know what, that's just the way it's always gonna be. It's just always gonna be that way. The way things are is the way it's always going to be. And you would be wrong. Because we oftentimes forget, and even histories that our our young people read in schools will not note the fact that there was a decisive moment in human history where in in a sealed tomb in Jerusalem, out walked one Sunday morning a man who had been three days dead. And in that moment, the power of the new creation of God, entered into this cosmos, and that man, that God-man that walked out of that tomb on that day was not wearing a crown of thorns. If we had eyes of faith, we would see that he was wearing an eternal throne, that the one who walked out of that grave was and is and always will be King and Lord of all. And what that means for us and how that should shape our view and even our passion and fears politically in the world that we live in today is the subject of All About Him 2020. Caesar bows to the king. Now there is a backstory here, and we're going to begin in the backstory, story, and that is the Old Testament. What about the kingship of Jesus in the Old Testament? If you read through the Old Testament, you'll see that there is brimming throughout the Old Testament in anticipation that someday there would be a perfect king who would rule the world. From even the beginning, in Genesis three, we are told about somebody who is going to crush the head of Satan, Genesis three, who possibly could be powerful enough to crush the head of the most powerful angel, now demon, in the cosmos. Abraham was told in Genesis 22 that there would be somebody who would come from his loins, who would be a blessing to all the world, Who could possibly bring such a blessing? And in the course of progressive revelation, as you read through the Old Testament, God prophetically paints a portrait of one who would crush Satan and who would bless and rule all the nations of the world. Now, we look back at the Old Testament now through the prism of the cross, and we know who he's getting at, don't we? But those people, those Old Testament saints, they didn't have the cross, they didn't know about the incarnation, They they didn't have these things. They didn't know who this was talking about. And what was said about this Messiah in the Old Testament was so extraordinary, we just wonder, who could it be? I mean, the mystery of the Messiah, to be born of a virgin... And yet also to be Isaiah 53, the suffering servant. But what really blew people's minds is what was said about this one who would come governmentally and kingly. Here's Isaiah 9, verse 6. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, notice, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. Everlasting Father, note, Prince of Peace. The government shall be upon his shoulders. What is that talking about regarding this one who would come? Like what government? Well, here there is no qualifier, so it is, it is all government. Every human kingdom and government will, quote, be upon his shoulders. Now what are shoulders? Shoulders are these things that stick out right here. Our, our arms are attached to them. Shoulders are important, you know that. If you ever need a shoulder surgery, I'm told it's a very painful surgery to come back from. Our shoulders are really important, especially when it comes to lifting things. Now, I've got two daughters that keep getting bigger and bigger and it makes me so sad. Uh, But these two daughters, every night when I put them down, they they say, carry me, daddy, carry. They want me to carry them up the stairs to their bedrooms. And a couple years ago, that wasn't, no, that's no big deal increasingly I'm finding that it's a big deal. They're getting bigger and, uh, and heavier, and I've, I'm at the place now where if I'm going to carry them up the stairs, I pretty much have to put them on my shoulders. And so I, one at a time, by the way, <laughs> I put them on my shoulders and I carry them up the stairs. And uh, as I'm doing that, I am, I'm uplifting them. The only way they're getting up those stairs is they are on my shoulders. The government shall be on his shoulders. What does that mean? This one who is coming will have a kind of relationship with all human governance, government, and authority such that their entire existence and all of their authority will depend on him. And notice here, he is the Prince of Peace. This speaks to the quality of his rule. His the, the, the way that he will lead and the way that he will govern will be a, a kind of peacemaking governance. He is, he is the prince of peace. And doesn't our world need a little bit of that right now? Oh, wouldn't it be great to have a prince of peace ruling over this world right now? To bring calm in the midst of the storm that our world is experiencing not only does government need a Prince of Peace, but communities need a Prince of Peace, and families need a Prince of Peace. How many marriages today would love to have a Prince of Peace? How about our church? We could, we could use a little Prince of Peace on all kinds of levels around here, amen? What is truly breathtaking is the scale of his rule. Here's Psalm 2, verse 7. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, note, and the ends of the earth your possession. The nations of the earth will be the possession of this one who is coming. Not Not just, you know, you think about this. There has never been a single human being who has ruled the entire globe in all of human history. Now, many have tried, of course. We can think about guys like Hitler or Napoleon. Alexander the Great. But Alexander the Great wasn't great enough to rule the entire globe. And yet, Psalm 2 tells us the one who is coming is going to have a governance whose scale is the entire world. Here's Daniel 7. I'm going to guess many of you are not familiar with this prophecy. This is, I mean, this is just an astonishing prophecy. Daniel 7. Daniel has a vision. It says this. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days, that's language for God the Father, Ancient of Days, and was presented before him. And... To him, not the Ancient of Days, but to the Son of Man, was given, note, dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should, should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Who could that be talking about? A vision of like the throne room of heaven where the ancient of days God the Father to him is presented, the Son of Man, we call him Jesus. And God the Father bestows upon the Son a kingdom whose scale is all nations, all peoples, and whose, notice the endurance of this kingdom, it shall not pass away. What kingdom have you ever read about in your history that has never passed away? There's never been one. There never will be one, except this one. His dominion will last forever. This is an echo of the Old Testament folks here. Maybe this is echoing in your mind. The promise that God gave to David in 2 Samuel 7, where he said, one of your descendants will sit on an eternal throne. Who could that be? And what kingdom could ever be an eternal throne? Well, this is all Old Testament foreshadowing of one who would come, who would have an eternal throne, an eternal rule, and whose authority would be such that he would rule in absolute dominion over all kings and over all kingdoms. And so we see in this, the scale and the scope is far-reaching, it includes everything, and it is enduring forever and ever. Again, we ask the question, just like they did all those centuries as they poured over the Old Testament scriptures, and they looked at these prophecies, and they thought, who could this be? Who could possibly be so great, so mighty, so powerful, so wise to sit on an eternal throne, to rule forever, and to be the Prince of Peace? Who could this be? So the Old Testament, it just anticipates somebody coming. And then we have those white pages in our Bible between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And maybe you should find that just to verify that what I'm telling you is true. There is a white page that says now the New Testament. And with that we have, really, the New Testament is the unveiling of who Jesus Christ is. But he doesn't come right away in all of his revelation. No, he comes in a veiled form. We get to the New Testament, though, and the language becomes clearer. It's clarifying the Old Testament anticipation and the prophecies, and it becomes much clearer regarding the royal nature and the royal line of Christ, who now moves into the center and the focus of Revelation is Jesus Christ, and specifically his true identity, who he is. And in the New Testament, there are two governance titles that summarize who Jesus is. King and Lord. King and Lord. We start with King. Mary's hanging out in Nazareth. An angel, Gabriel, appears to her. And what does Gabriel say to her? He says this about this child that would come to her, the virgin. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God, note, will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. The wise men show up in in, uh, Jerusalem. They've come a long ways. They're from the east, and they come in, and what do they ask where is he born king of the Jews, Matthew 2.2. 2. And all Jerusalem is, is in an uproar, not only because of who these guys are, no doubt their appearance, but what they're asking. What do you mean king of the Jews? What do you mean king of the Jews? You mean the Old Testament king of the Jews? The Romans were upset, the Jews were wondering. All they could do is say, well, Micah says be, he'll be born in Bethlehem, you might wanna go check it out there. And off they go in the city of David. Jesus' royal pedigree was only understood by foreigners and philosophers, not the Jews of the day. But even with that, if you know the story, Caesar was threatened by this, the possibility of a usurper. What did Herod do after the wise men did not come back and give a report to him? They went back by an alternate route. What did Caesar do? And by the way, as I talk about Caesar here, it is a general term for human government in the rest of this message. How did Caesar respond to the possibility of a usurper? Do you remember? He sent down his soldiers and they killed every child in the entire region two years and under to make sure there would be no threat to Caesar. Did it work? No, it did not because the true child king had escaped to Egypt. And this kingly language is continued to be developed. It it no doubt finds its pinnacle many years later when Jesus gets on, the foal of a donkey and rides into Jerusalem. And those that had eyes of prophecy would understand that that little foal was more than a foal, it was a royal carriage. Why did he ride that and not something else? Why did he walk in? Because he knew the Old Testament prophecy. He knew that this was the sign of the king being offered to Jerusalem as the Old Testament said. He was riding a royal carriage that day And there were people there who kind of understood. They began to sing royal psalms over him. But nobody really understood. Nobody really got who this person actually was. And in a few days, the Jewish Caesars would unleash their terror at the threat to their power. How? By charging that Jesus claimed to be an actual king. Here's Luke 23. And they began to accuse him, saying, we found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. And if you know the story, this was pure hypocrisy because the Pharisees, they were no fans of the Romans at all. But the enemy of my enemy is my what? Is my friend. And so they began now to basically manipulate Pilate. Why? Because they needed Roman approval in order to kill Jesus, and that's what they wanted to do. He claims to be a king, Pilate. Oh, great Caesar, what will you do? And if you read the story, surprisingly, Pilate actually initially wants to release Jesus. John 19. From then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, if you release this man, you are not, notice, Caesar's friend, Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. What's going on here? This is backroom dealings that would make Washington, D.C., you know, amazed. Okay? They are, this is political theater that's going on here. They are manipulating Pilate. And what is the accusation? Not against Jesus, but actually against Pilate. If you let him go, you're no friend of Rome. Because he claims to be a king. And Romans were ruthless with any threat to their power and their authority. And Pilate understood what they were saying. You let him go, this is not only gonna be your position, it might be your head. So Pilate decides to ask Jesus directly in John 18. He says, Are you the king of the Jews? Here's Jesus' reply my kingdom is not of this world. Does he say he's not a king? No, he doesn't say he's not a king, why? Because he is a king. But his kingdom, at least at that point, was not of this world. You know, friends, the the Pilots and the Caesars, big and small, even to our day, they only view the news, they only view what happens, they don't view it through the grid of human suffering. They don't view it through the grid of, 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 of terrible hurricanes or whatever. No. The only thing that matters is how this might affect the election in November. Have you noticed that? It's not about the actual people. It's about the political power and the implications for what this means. Drives me crazy. But why is it? Because our world is politicized. Our world bows to the idol of power and governance. There are many Pontius Pilots today, and these Pilots always see Jesus and Christianity as a threat to them. Why does communist China outlaw Christianity today? Like, what if they have nuclear weapons? They've got aircraft carriers, and they've got generation five fighter planes, and they've got missiles, and they've got tanks, and they've got... They've got billions of bullets and why does communist China outlaw actual true Christianity? What are they so afraid of? Why did ancient England burn Tyndale and Wycliffe at the stake for translating the Bible into English? Why did Nero hate Christianity so much? friends? This story is as old as, as, as uh, the story of the gospel. Caesar hates Christianity because it undermines his power. Why did they put a crown of thorns on Jesus? You ever think about that? Why not a bracelet of thorns or, or a, you know, a belt of thorns? Why a crown? Get it, a crown of thorns. What were they mocking? They weren't mocking His miracle making, they weren't mocking his teaching. They weren't mocking his birth in Bethlehem. They were mocking his claim to be a king. And Caesar will not tolerate any threat to his power. What did they say as they mocked him and they beat him? Do you remember? Did they say, hail uh, one born in Bethlehem? Hail, O Nazarene, fulfilling Old Testament prophecy. Hail, resurrector of Lazarus from the dead. Hail, feeder of 5,000. Is that what they mocked him? No. Hail, king of the Jews. It was his claim to authority and royalty and power that they mocked. What sign did they put over his head? Jesus of Nazareth, born in Bethlehem, Jesus of Nazareth, you might have heard of him. Jesus of Nazareth, prophet or priest. No, what do they say? This is Jesus of Nazareth, king of the Jews. Look at us, we're nailing to the cross the guy who claimed to be a threat to Caesar. Do you know who the ultimate Caesar is? It's not Pilate, it's not Nero, it's not Alexander the Great, it's not the President of the United States. The ultimate Caesar Is Satan we go back into the story of the temptation of Jesus I don't have time to get into this fully but if you think about the three temptations that Jesus faced which one of them was the most seductive what did Satan offer to Jesus bow to me and I will give you the what the kingdoms of the world What was Satan actually offering there? Here is a way for your prophesied kingdom to come to you without a cross, without fulfilling the Father's will, without any of these things. I will give you what you want without the things that you don't want, but you have to bow to me. And every Caesar They always want Jesus and his followers and his church to bow to them. King. The second title is Lord. We use this so much, I think that it often, we fail to realize what it's actually saying. What it actually means when we say Lord Jesus Christ. The word entitled Lord is a governance term. This is a, an authority term. In the, Greek, in the Greek Old Testament, the Septuagint, the name of God was slightly altered because it was so holy to this word, Kyrios, Lord. 6,000 times in the Old Testament it does that. But no Jew would ever take that Greek word that applied to the very name of God and assign it to any flesh and blood. Never would do that. It would be blasphemy. It would be irreverence. It would be so wrong. And yet this is exactly what Peter does on the day of Pentecost, the very first sermon after the Holy Spirit comes. What does he say? Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ. Do you get that? This Jesus, whom you crucified. King is a royal title. King is, a, is a, a royal line from David. It is positional. It is title. But you can go to Europe right now and throw a stone, and you'll probably hit somebody who has a title. The title uh, gentry of Europe, and they've got some old house they live in, and they've got a title but they have no authority. They have no power. All they have is title. Europe is filled with bejeweled and impotent, titled gentry. But they are impotent. This reminds me of a moment I had this summer with my daughters. I, was, uh, uh, I had my, my two girls in the back seat and decided to drive through our old neighborhood to show them the house that we used to live in. And so we're driving through the neighborhood, and lo and behold, we came upon uh, a guy in our church who was outside enjoying the summer sun, had his shirt off, washing his car. And uh, so we pulled up, and, then, you know, and, and he came out, and we kind of chit-chatted a little bit there by the car. And uh, when it was done, and he was walking away, and we were pulling away, my, my daughter said, Dad, his muscles are bigger than yours. Now I dispute it, okay, I just wanna go on record and say that I, to this day, I dispute their claim. His muscles are bigger than yours. We look at Jesus and we have to see much more than a title. He has the title, king but he has muscles as well. He has power. He is both king and lord. Lord is authority. Lord is supremacy. It is is control. He He is the enthroned king, and he is the absolute ruler and authority over all. Listen to one commentator explain the significance of Jesus as Lord. He says this, since Jesus is Lord, he shares with the Father qualities like deity, Romans 9, preexistence, John 8, holiness, Hebrews 4, and compassion, to name just a few. He is co-creator, Colossians 1, and co-regent, presiding in power at the Father's right hand, Acts 2, where he intercedes for God's people, Romans 8. And from whence, as the creed says, he will return to judge the living and the dead, 2 Thessalonians 1. Just as it is impossible to overstate the power, grandeur, and goodness of the Kyrios, the Father, so there is hardly limit to the glory ascribed in Scripture to the Kyrios, the Son. This lordship of Jesus is an affirmation of every single person who is actually saved. Romans 10, if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead, we shall be saved. And this confession of Jesus Christos Curios, Jesus Christ is Lord, from ancient times, the very first creed of the church. It was like the secret little uh, password that people would say, Jesus Christ is Lord. Why was it scandalous? Because when you live in a world that demands the worship of the emperor of of Rome, to to say Jesus Christ is Lord, to whisper that in each other's ears was in a sense an act of high treason. It cost Polycarp his life but it is the affirmation of every single genuine Christian. If you are here today and you are under the grace of God, my friend, then you are somebody who has bent the knee to the lordship of Jesus Christ and have affirmed in your heart that he reigns over all. This is what separated Christianity from the polytheistic emperor-worshiping peoples of its day. It was scandalous then, and I'm here to tell you, it's scandalous now. You might be like, oh, those old people, that old kinds of people, those old ancient people, you know, we're so much more sophisticated now. We've moved beyond such things, really? This creed, Jesus is Lord, summarizes everything found in every other creed. It is to pledge allegiance to the sovereign kingship and rule of Jesus, over the universe. And by the way, that is going on right now. Do you remember what Jesus said before he ascended to heaven in Matthew 28? We call it the Great Commission. We get down to make disciples of all nations. We can skip over the first part. All authority in heaven and on earth, what has been given to me? Therefore, go and make disciples. Right now, as you and I sit here today, Jesus is on his throne. Right now, Jesus is ruling the universe. Right now, he is the sovereign king over all. And yet, his reign currently is a provisional reign. And afterwards, you could come up to me and say, hey, wait a second, how is Satan the prince of this world and Jesus is the, is the king of the world? How does that work? Why is that the case? Well, it is because this is a provisional rule. It is not, it's not a reign like it's always going to be. It is provisionally this way right now where Satan does exert his destructive influence on earth and he is trying to undermine everything that is good and glorious and gospel in this world. Satan has not bent the knee to Jesus. And there are billions of people in this earth, and maybe in your friend circle, and maybe right here in the room right now, who have not yet bent the knee to the lordship of Jesus Christ. He continues to be mocked. His name continues to be profaned, even as kingdoms still fear him and outlaw his worship in the world that we live in right now. And right now there continues to be human governments, and right now there continues to be kings and queens, and there continues to be prime ministers and congresses and and presidents. And we've got all of these sort of little fiefdoms where we have human beings, little worm human beings exerting authority in some way in this world. And we could think that this is the way that it's gonna go on forever. We could think that the United States, the greatest nation on earth, there's always gonna be a president, there's always gonna be a Congress, there's always gonna be states, and there's always gonna be the United States of America. We can look at China and think, there'll always be a China, there'll always be a Russia, there'll always be a Brazil, there'll always be an India. Pick your nation and your kingdom. And we could think that what it is now is the way that it will always be, and you, my friend, would be wrong. Because Caesar has a shock coming. And this is what Revelation 19 tells us is coming. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, the one sitting on it called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, many crowns, On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Amen. This anticipated king in the Old Testament, whose rule would last forever and whose the scope would be over all the world, the people thought, who could possibly be that? This anticipated king, this veiled and then somewhat unveiled king. Jesus, who exerted his power, saying, Peace be still, and multiplying the bread, and Lazarus come forth, and all the other things that he did, showing the power and authority that is alone his as the Son of God. This king, who was resurrected on the third day, and told the disciples, Go tell everybody you can about who I am, and that forgiveness of sins is available by faith in my name. This king, who now for 2,000 years the church has in, in very uneven ways, sought to be faithful to the call that we have to proclaim the lordship of Jesus and his kingship to all who will affirm that and trust and believe and bend the knee of their heart and throne Jesus in their heart. This one someday is going to return. And the sky that you see when you walk outside from this service will someday be rent. And stepping through that sky will be the one that John describes here in Revelation. And of all the things that are said about him, his eyes of fire and, and uh, the tongue that judges and, and kills and the power and the glory that is his and all the armies of, the, of heaven that are riding with him, of all the things that are said, there is only one thing that is written on him. And that one thing is the thing I'm talking about today. He is, note, king of kings, and lord of lords. And in that moment, every human authority, and there's gonna be, you're gonna have nations, and you're gonna have kings, and you're gonna, and we don't know when this is gonna happen, but every single human governance, and every single Caesar on the planet, and every king and queen, and prime minister and president, every governor, and everybody else will tremble as they see what divine glory and authority looks like and I want you to notice he is not a king and a lord what does it say he is king of all kings and lord of all lords and the bible goes on to talk about a moment that every single one of us are going to be a part of there is coming a day and depending on your eschatology where you place it but there's coming a day When every single human being that has ever lived, every single angel or demon that was ever created, all those that are living, all those that have long since died, all are going to gather together. And Philippians 2 describes this moment. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth, and under the earth, and every tongue confess. What are they going to confess? Jesus Christos Kyrios, Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Imagine this moment, and you know, someday you're not going to have to imagine it. I guarantee you're going to be there. We're all going to be there. We're all going to be gathered. What a sight that will be angels and demons, redeemed and unredeemed, the great and the mighty and the famous and the rich and the powerful in history, the small and the long since forgotten, all will gather. And the text here says that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. Get the irony of this. Satan wanted Jesus to bow to him. Satan will bow to Jesus Rome wanted Jesus to bow to him, begged Polycarp to make it happen. But Rome bows. Caesar bows. Alexander the Great bows. William the Conqueror bows. Genghis Khan bows. Hitler bows. Judas Iscariot bows. Frederick the Great bows. There's Nero bows. Caiaphas bows. Every single U.S. president bows. And get this, you're going to bow. You could be here the most hardened atheist. You hate Christianity. You hate the church. You came here for whatever reason. I don't care how hard your heart is. You're going to bow. You will bow to the king. And the story is, you either bow now or you bow later because someday everybody bows. And the urging of the gospel of Jesus is to bow now <laughs> because today is the day of salvation. Today is the time where this great King, Lord, and Savior offers to any sinner the opportunity to repent of our sins and to put our faith and trust in Jesus and to, in a sense, bow our life before him, to submit to his lordship, his kingship, his royalty. And by doing that, to enter eternity under his grace. You enter into eternity not under the grace of the king of kings and lord of lords. That is eternally perilous. Bow now, because someday all will bow before this king. I would urge you to put your faith and trust in him today. And finally, this puts all of the froth, all of the chatter, all of the buzz, the rancor, that we see in the world around us today, all these government debates and politics, it puts them in their proper perspective. Is Christian citizen important is citizenship important? Yeah. Yeah, it is. In a democracy, should Christians vote? Yeah. Should we vote Christian values? Yeah. I, I, would, I, would, I would say so. Do we care about who is in government over us for the next X amount of years? Yeah. Yeah, okay. But not too much. Not too much. Because we have eyes of faith, and we see through the scriptures and the gospel that our forever king is on his throne, our sovereign ruler, before all whom will bow is Jesus Christos Kyrios Jesus Christ is Lord all praise and glory be to him Amen, Amen.